Psalm 56, beginning at verse 1. Let's read together. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Yes. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes. Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, we glorify you for your Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching today. Let your word come alive to us, I ask. I lift up to you other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. Not just blessing, but protection upon them. I lift up our loved ones, not yet walking in right relationship with you, that you draw them to a place of repentance, that not one of them be lost. I pray this in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The king stood gaping with contempt at the loathsome figure lying in the dust. Reflecting on the last time he had seen him, the contrast between then and now couldn't be starker. The image of that young lad, head thrown back in a shout of victory that echoed through the valley of Elah, brandishing a captured sword in one hand and raising the freshly severed head of the Philistine giant in the other, was indelibly etched in his memory. This pathetic creature, hair matted, nails chipped and fingers bleeding from scratching at the heavy wooden gate, Spittle caked in his beard, reeking of sweat, urine, and excrement, muttering incoherently, bore scant resemblance to the youthful champion that had taken down Goliath with a sling and led the Israelite army in a rout of their Philistine oppressors. As Achish, king of Gath, looked upon David, he remembered the report of the song the women composed after the Israeli victory against his forces. Saul has slain his thousands, and David, 
his ten thousands. With growing disgust, coupled with a growing apprehension, he wondered what had turned the former darling of Israel into the odious, drooling madman groveling before him. King Achish was a cruel leader. Now that David was captured and imprisoned, he wanted nothing better than to take vengeance on this one who had caused his humiliating defeat. At the same time, Achish was highly superstitious. According to the wisdom of that day, if a mentally challenged person was executed or even harmed, it would bring disastrous results on the land. So when Achish kicked David out of the city, it wasn't an act of pity. It was an act of self-preservation born out of fear. Every time I read the story that is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21 of David escaping the wrath of Saul by fleeing to the city of Gath, it always begs the question, whatever would possess David to think this was a good idea? I mean, it, it hasn't been that long that David had battled and killed the champion of the Philistines, Goliath of Gath. <laughs> Did he think that these people would forget all about the indignity they suffered at his hands and welcome him with open arms? What would drive a person to this kind of irrational behavior? The answer is really very simple, and it's found in this psalm that forms the text for the message today. The superscription at the beginning of the psalm says that the occasion of its writing was when the Philistines seized David in Gath. And it's a direct reference to the story found in 1 Samuel 21. In verse 3 of this psalm, David reveals the desperation that drove him to react to Saul's threats by running to Gath when he writes in verse 3, when I am afraid. I have to confess that anytime I think of David, Fear is the last thing that comes to mind. When I think of David, I think of a courageous shepherd lad single-handedly killing a bear and a lion in protection of his sheep. I think of bold David challenging the giant Goliath, running to engage him in battle armed with nothing but a sling and five smooth stones. I think of artistic David composing songs and playing his harp with such an anointing of the Spirit of God that demonic spirits are chased away from tormenting King Saul. I think of noble David, ruling over the nation of Israel with wisdom and strength. Even in his baser moment, I think of passionate David, lustfully desiring another man's wife. I think of repentant David, confessing his sin and weeping before the Lord. I think of restored David, forever known by the Almighty as a man after God's own heart. Somehow, fearful 
David doesn't seem to fit the picture. And yet David declares, I am afraid. This is what drives him to seek refuge among people he knows are his enemies. Fear. I found that fear is a harsh taskmaster. Fear causes you to behave irrationally. Fear drives you to actions you would never take under any other circumstance. When in the grip of fear, you will say things and you will do things that are completely out of character. When bound by fear, you lose control. Fear creates desperation. Fear leads you to either fight or flight or just completely shut down. Some of you understand this feeling of fear because it's where you've been living. Fear of losing a loved one. Fear of losing your job. Fear of starting that business. Fear of confronting your problems. Fear of standing for what you believe in. Even fear of coming to church. Fear has robbed some of you of sleep. Fear has caused you to lie about your problems. Fear has caused you to remain silent when you should have spoken out about your opinions and your convictions. Fear of rejection has caused some of you to compromise. Fear of failure has caused you to work harder and harder, trying to be the perfect parent, the perfect spouse, the most productive employee, but the result left pain, grief, and sorrow. I'm talking about that fear which wars against your soul and against your purpose. I'm talking about that fear that ties your hand and cripples your feet and stresses your heart. This is the kind of fear that was controlling David. David had triumphed over Goliath. David was celebrated by the people of Israel. David was anointed by God to be the successor king. But when Saul threatened his life, David became afraid and ran. Because of fear, he obviously wasn't thinking straight. He jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. He ran from Saul to the worst possible place, his mortal enemy, King Achish of Gath. Can you imagine the kind of welcome David received at Gath? It didn't take long for the people to recognize him. I mean, not only did he make no effort at disguise, but he actually entered the city carrying the sword of their fallen champion Goliath that he had retrieved from Abimelech when he made his hasty escape from King Saul. As David walked down the street, heads turned, eyes blazed with hatred, curses just barely audible were uttered. Mothers grabbed their children and pushed them into the house, barring the door. David was detained. His motives were questioned. His every move carefully watched and scrutinized. It was only a question of when, not if, he would be executed. 
Here, David felt the icy fingers of fear once more taking hold of his life. He had to get out, had to escape. So he pretended to be crazy. And maybe, in a way, it wasn't all an act. Fear had become David's Lord. He was governed by fear, no longer guided by faith. David knew he had allowed fear to cripple his walk with the Lord. That's why this psalm begins by saying, Be gracious to me, O God. It's a plea for mercy. And then we come to verse 3. Here David reveals the antidote he discovered to fear. When I am afraid, and here's the antidote, I will put my trust in you. The antidote to fear is trust. Ah, this isn't some generic kind of trust. Oh, no, it's very specific. See, there are a lot of people today who have trust, but their trust is misplaced. Uh, some have put their trust in their own intelligence and abilities. Some have put their trust in other people. Some have put their trust in the government. Some have put their trust in science. Some have put their trust in education. There are a host of other places where people put their trust, but none of them are trustworthy. Every one of those entities will ultimately prove false, and fear will return. But David sings about a trust that will stop fear in its tracks. This is a trust that will reverse the effects of fear. This is a trust that will stop fear from spreading. When this trust is in your life, you will be permanently inoculated against the destructive virus of fear. And it's right here in verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God... I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Here, David lets us know the foundation of the trust that is the antidote to fear. It isn't trust in a program. It isn't trust in a system. It isn't trust in a method. It isn't trust in a philosophy or a doctrine or a creed. It's trust in a person. I just want you to know today that friends may forsake you, but you can trust the Lord. Family may turn their back on you, but you can trust the Lord. The job may be terminated, but you can trust the Lord. The stock market may crash, but you can trust the Lord. Your health may fail, but you can trust the Lord. The government may collapse, but you can trust the Lord. Society may crumble, but you can trust the Lord. The church may let you down, but you can trust the Lord. When all hope is gone, when help is removed, when kingdoms fail, when storms arise, when nature trembles, when everything is falling apart, you can still trust the Lord. There, 
There, there is nothing going on in this world that has rattled him. There is nothing that has caught him off guard or taken him by surprise. He still sits with the heavens as his throne and the earth as his footstool. He has not surrendered his scepter of authority to another. Age has not dimmed his eye, nor weakened his hand, nor dulled his hearing. Corruption has not clouded his judgment. Wickedness and lawlessness have not distracted him from his purpose. A pandemic doesn't cause him to panic. The presence of evil doesn't require him to call for backup or reinforcements. I like what S.M. Lockeridge said. There was nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. He has no predecessor. He'll have no successor. You can't impeach him. He's not going to resign. I'm telling you, you can trust the Lord. David says that this foundation of trust that is the antidote to fear is not only in a person, the person of God, but it's also in the promise of God. That's what he's talking about in verse 4 when he sings, in God, watch it, whose word I praise. Because God cannot lie, then his promises are true. You can depend on the promise of his word. When he promises in Matthew 28 and 20, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, you can trust him. When he promises in Isaiah 41 and 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When he says that, you can trust him. When he promises in Isaiah 26 and 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. You can trust him. When he promises in Isaiah 43 and 19, behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. When he says that, you can trust him. When he promises in Proverbs 16 and 20, he who gives attention to the word will find good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. <laughs> you can trust him. When he promises in Psalm 32 and 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. You can trust him. When he promises in Psalm 125 and 1, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. <laughs> you can trust him. When he promises in Isaiah 26 and 4, trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. You can trust him. I'm telling you the foundation of trust that is the antidote to fear is a person. And it's a promise. And then I want to remind you that it's the power of God. This is what David is talking about in verse 13 when he sings, For you have delivered my soul from death. This is what he means in verse 4 and again in verse 11 when he writes, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Now understand, when David says, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? Uh, he isn't claiming to be Superman and he's not claiming that he's indestructible. How many of you know there's a lot man can do to you? All right? Rather, what David was saying there is that at the end of the day, the worst that the king of Gath can do is kill him. He's focusing on the big picture. 
the long-range view rather than the immediate. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said in Matthew 10 and 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, I'm telling you today, if God could deliver Moses and the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, God can deliver you. If God could deliver Joshua from Jericho, he can deliver you. If God could deliver Gideon from the Midianites, he can deliver you. If God could deliver Hezekiah from Sennacherib, he can deliver you. If God could deliver Daniel from the den of lions, <laughs> he can deliver you. If God could deliver three Hebrew boys from a fiery furnace, I tell you, he can deliver you. I, I want to suggest it's time for the people of God to repent of being afraid of anything more than God. What are you fearing today more than God? Loss of income? Loss of employment, loss of a relationship, loss of a preferred way of life. I'm not making light of the current issue in our world, but if you're fearing COVID more than God, you need to repent. Our God is a deliverer. He is the God of more than enough. He is the God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we're able to ask or even think. He brings water out of a rock in the wilderness. He gives daily bread like the morning dew on the grass. He supplies all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He causes mountains to be leveled, valleys to be raised, rough places to be smooth, crooked places to be straight. He's bigger than your problems. He's greater than your circumstances. He's higher than your mountain. The waves of your storm are under his feet. Put your trust in him. What can mere man do to you? Not only does David reveal the foundation of trust that is the antidote to fear, but then he tells about the favor of trust. He says in verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. I heard the story about the preacher that was making a wooden trellis to support a climbing vine in his garden. He's out there working away. He was pounding away on this. And he noticed a little boy that was over on the side watching him. The youngster didn't say a word, so the preacher just kept working, thinking the lad would leave. But he didn't. Well, pleased at the thought that his work was being admired, the preacher finally said, well, son, trying to pick up some pointers on gardening? No, he replied. I'm just waiting to hear what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. <clears throat> that little boy was watching to see how the preacher would respond to pain. He wanted to see how he would handle hurt. And I want to suggest to you that the world is a lot like that little boy. It's watching. 
to see how those who claim to be children of God will act when faced with suffering and injustice and unfairness. See, the world knows what it will see in the world. In the world, they will see anger, resentment, bitterness, rage. But I want to tell you, that isn't what the world wants to see. The world wants to see people who can face difficulties in life with grace and inner strength and thereby give them hope for their own struggles. In the first four verses of this psalm, David declares that God is merciful. In the last two verses, he declares that God is mighty. But here in verse 9, David is captured with one of the greatest ideas that could ever be understood. And that is that God is mindful. This is the favor that is extended to those who trust in the Lord. No more wonderful words could ever be uttered and no more wonderful words could ever be embraced than the words that are in verse 9 when David sings, This I know that God is for me. Hmm. See, in verses 3 and 4, the Lord is mindful of David's trust. In verses 5 through 7, the Lord is mindful of David's trials. But then in verses 8 and 9, the Lord is mindful of David's tears. I want to tell you today, in the midst of all the problems you face, I want you to know, God is for you. David says, I know that my enemies are going to be turned back. I know that God is going to give me victory over my trouble and my trials because God is for me. That's why David could sing in verse 4 and again in verse 11, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? It's because he understood. God is for me. Listen, some of you are in a place where you feel that God has forgotten about you. Some of you are in such a struggle that you think you're abandoned. Some of you may have even convinced yourself that God has become your enemy. Well, I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. See, the enemy of your soul would tell you that you're defeated, but God is for you. The enemy of your soul would tell you that you're abandoned, but God is for you. The enemy of your soul would tell you that you're forsaken, but God is for you. When you lay awake at night agonizing over that wayward child, God is for you. When your eyes are a fountain of tears from grief over the loss of a loved one, God is for you. When the future is uncertain, God is for you. When the way is hard and you feel like you can't go another step, God is for you. When the pain of the heartbreak is unbearable, God is for you. When the losses are irrecoverable, God is for you. When the disappointments are more than you can handle, God is for you. In the midnight hour, God is for you. In the depths of despair, God is for you. When you've even given up on yourself, God is for you. 
Verse 8 says, you have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You couldn't see him. You couldn't hear him. You couldn't feel him. Even then, he was watching over your every step. He was capturing every tear, preserving them. He was writing down every one of your burdens, every one of your frustrations, every one of your heartaches. When it seems like everything that can go wrong is going wrong, God is for you. When it seems like nobody cares about what's going on in your life, God is for you. When the valley is so deep that it seems to never run out and the mountaintop is out of sight, hear me today, God is for you. Even when you are faithless, he is faithful. When you fall, you'll never hit bottom because underneath you'll find his everlasting arms. I'm telling you, God is, oh, I wish somebody would grab this today. God is paying attention to you. God is looking out for you. God is watching over you. God is keeping you. God is sustaining you. God is sheltering you. God is securing you. Keep holding on. Fear not. God is for you. David tells about the foundation of trust. He tells about the favor of trust. And then finally, he tells about the fruit of trust. It's in the last part of verse 13 when he writes, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Fear paralyzes. Fear keeps you from functioning. Fear saps your energy. Fear causes you to shut down. But there is an antidote to fear. It's called trust. When you are vaccinated against fear with trust, the result is this, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. See, this is the fruit of trust. With trust... You can keep moving forward. With trust, you can function. With trust, you can live. I have a word for you today. Trust in the Lord, then walk in the light of life. Now, that's a lot more profound than some of you are figuring out right now. So just let that sink in for a moment. Here's what he says, my trust is in you, so I can keep walking. Trust in the Lord and live. Trust in the Lord, get on with life and living. Don't let fear shut you down. Trust in the Lord, don't stop living. Trust in the Lord, don't shut down, live. (laughs) For as long as you live, Live. No matter what life throws at you, trust in the Lord and live. Why don't you just look over at somebody and say, I received that today. I'm just going to keep living. I'm going to keep living. I'm not going to stop living. 
In the early 1900s, there was a black jazz musician from Atlanta named Thomas Andrew Dorsey. In the 1920s, he gained a certain amount of notoriety as the composer of blues and jazz tunes with suggestive lyrics. Following a severe illness in 1926, Dorsey was converted in 1928 and he became active in the Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago. He gave up his jazz career to concentrate exclusively on spiritual music. By 1932, times were hard for Dorsey. Just trying to survive the Depression years as a working musician meant things were really tough. On top of that, this gospel music with jazz flavorings wasn't accepted by many people. <laughs> Some said it was too worldly. They called it the devil's music. Many years later, he could laugh about it. <clears throat> he said, I got kicked out of some of the best churches in the land. <laughs> but his real heartbreak came one night in St. Louis. In August of 1932, Dorsey had to go to St. Louis where he was to be the featured soloist at a large revival meeting. He didn't want to go because his wife, Nettie, was in the last month of pregnancy with their first child. But a lot of people were expecting him and his wife urged him to go. In the steaming St. Louis heat, the crowd called on him to sing again and again. When he finally sat down, a messenger boy ran up with a Western Union telegram. Dorsey ripped open the envelope and found pasted on the yellow sheet the words, your wife just died. Returning to Chicago, he learned that Nettie had given birth to a boy. His emotions were so torn, grief over the death of his wife, joy over the birth of his son. Yet that night, the baby died also. Nettie and the boy were buried together in the same casket. And then Dorsey fell apart. His faith was shaken to the roots. He, he felt that God had done him an injustice. He didn't want to serve him anymore. D didn't want to write gospel songs. Just wanted to go back to the jazz world he once knew so well. On the following Saturday evening, a friend of his, uh, Professor Fry, took Dorsey up to a neighborhood music school. It was quiet. The late evening sun crept through the curtained windows. Dorsey went over and sat down at the piano and his hands began to just browse over the keys. Somewhere from deep in his memory came an old pentatonic five-note melody from his Sunday school days. It was usually sung with the text, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone? arranging this tune, and then his own words began to come out. Dorsey composed a song that became a prayer, and at the same time, a declaration of trust in a God who cares. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Help me stand 
I am tired, I am weak, I am worn Through the storm, through the night Lead me on to the light Take my hand Precious Lord, lead me home when my way grows dream. Precious Lord, linger near when my life is all. Precious Lord, lead me home. When the darkness appears and the night draws near and the day is past and gone at the river I stand guide my feet hold my hand take my hand precious Lord Some of you are facing things right now that have you afraid. Some of you are going to face some things in the coming days ahead that will cause you to fear. I want to admonish you today to place your hand in the hand of a loving God. Take the antidote to fear. Trust Him. He is for you. He will walk with you. And at times when need be, he will carry you. You are never alone. Put your trust in him and live. Live. Don't shut down. Don't stop living. have to exercise caution I'm not saying be reckless don't be foolish but live my time is up Stan
few weeks, some of you have come to the conclusion that we're about to enter a, a new season of utopia. Some of you have come to the conclusion that we've about ready to end a, enter into a season of chaos and destruction. I don't know which one it's going to be. I have some thoughts, but they are my thoughts and they'll remain mine. They, I don't need to impose them on you. I can tell you this, no matter what happens, I'm going to live. God is for me. I put my trust in him. I will not be afraid. I refuse to be afraid. I wish I could... I wish I could impress that upon you in such a way that you will never forget it. Just live without fear. Lord, we submit this message to you and we submit our lives to you. I don't know who this has been for. It, it may have just been for me. But help us. Give us the, the courage to trust you. No matter what it appears like on the outside. Give us the, the courage to trust. And to just keep moving forward. And live. Until the day you call us home. Or you come for your bride. Thank you, Lord. We trust you today and we thank you for the assurance that we have in you now. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here for this Sunday.